celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 15 with Andy Chaikin, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. It was exactly half a century ago that Commander Dave Scott and Lunar Module Pilot Jim Irwin became the seventh and eighth men to walk on the moon. Above them, Command Module Pilot Al Warden tended cameras and instruments of science as he circled our big natural satellite. No one has done a better job of chronicling their journey than Andy Chaikin. His 1994 book, A Man on the Moon, tells the story of all the Apollo adventures. I'm so glad to welcome Andy back to our show. We'll follow that conversation with another visit by the Planetary Society's chief scientist, Bruce Betts. Shouldn't we be sending a robot to Saturn's moon, Enceladus? Of course we should. I mean, just look at it, which is something you can do in the July 23rd edition of the Downlink, our free weekly newsletter. You can also see China's Zhurong Mars rover making a visit to its own backshell and parachute on the plains of Mars. These and more are at planetary.org slash downlink, which is also where you can read about the second anniversary of the Planetary Society's Light Sail 2 unfurling its sails. And did you know that you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, also free, of course, planetary.org slash radio news. Andy Chaikin has written at least four of my favorite books about space exploration. They include A Passion for Mars, Voices from the Moon, and the classic that started it all, A Man on the Moon, The Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts. That book inspired Tom Hanks to create his award-winning miniseries, From the Earth to the Moon. Andy is a space historian, a geologist, a musician, and a brilliant public speaker, He recently joined me from his New England home. We talked for well over an hour. He has been thinking about the lessons Apollo can share with the Artemis generation, about the beauty and importance of the moon, about how astronauts have evolved over the decades, and about how difficult it will be to put humans on Mars, but how important that goal remains. All of that can be heard online at planetary.org slash radio, We'll focus here on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 15, a mission of science and firsts, including the first use of a lunar rover. Andy Chaikin, it is a tremendous pleasure to welcome you back to Planetary Radio. It has been too long, and we have such good excuses for talking again now. Welcome back to the show. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Matt. I always look forward to being here. Happy Apollo 15 50th anniversary. I know. I <laughs> I want to say that time flies and it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it actually does. <laughs> I mean, I remember that summer. I remember being in the den with the air conditioner going because it was a hot Long Island summer, glued to the TV. Absolutely just like always on every Apollo flight, following every minute that I possibly could. And I think right around now, you know, after they left the moon, Al Worden, the command module pilot on Apollo 15, became one of the only three humans, and this he was the first, to make a spacewalk halfway yeah. between the moon and the earth. And by God, there was live television of that. So I have this vivid memory 
of being in the den, watching this ghostly figure floating alongside the side of the ship in the blackness of space. It's just indelible. So that part really doesn't seem like that long ago. There is this new edition of your book, A Man on the Moon, which I, I want to talk about a little bit. I, you know, I read the book, God, decades ago. That also seems like a long time. Now, of course, I have, and it's sitting next to me, this two-volume set from uh, the Folio Society. It may be the most gorgeous, beautiful, spectacular book that I've ever seen. And, <laughs> of, and of course, what sets it apart from the original Man on the Moon are these incredible images. And here you are, an image guy. There are have been so many chronicles of the Apollo program. There was another slew of them two years ago, as of course, as we hit the uh, Apollo 11 50th anniversary. And I saw a lot of them. Nothing touches what you did with A Man on the Moon because of not only did, were you just a consummate storyteller of all of the action that took place, but it is so personal because, of course, you talked to all these guys, all of them except for Jack Swigert, who you know, sadly passed away before you, uh, before you started the book. I was absolutely hardwired to want to put my head into that experience. I still am. I didn't know when I was a kid that there was such a thing as a space historian, let mm. alone that I would become one or a storyteller of space. But, you know, the anecdote that I just described to you of being in the den with the black and white TV going, Al Worden floating in space, or days earlier watching Dave Scott and Jim Irwin drive up the side of a lunar mountain and get out and do geology on the moon. Yeah. That was the, the spark. That was what lit the fire was seeing that. I had to figure out how to be a storyteller that would live up to the magnificence of the material. You know, how do you how do you put down on paper after you've sat down with somebody like Dave Scott? I still remember this also very clearly. Dave and I did three interviews. We went to a restaurant somewhere in the LA area. I can't remember where it was. I just remember that we were there for hours at a time. And he took me through every aspect of Apollo 15. And I will never forget him describing, I said to him, well, okay, you and Jim, you're up on the side of this lunar mountain called Hadley Delta. You're hundreds of feet up. I brought to the restaurant photographs that I could show him as a memory jogger. And he started to describe it. And he talked about the brilliance of the scene, the pristine quality of the landscape. And I, I got this feeling for this, this vast, ancient, pristine wilderness. Okay. Mm. And then he said, you know, and then out in the middle of all that, he could see three and a half miles away was their lunar module. Now, this is a big machine. You go and see a lunar module in a museum, one of the ones that didn't actually get to go to the moon. There are a handful of them. Yeah. And this is a big thing, but at three and a half miles, it was just a little speck. I had that image from Dave verbally. I had to then turn it into narrative that would get the reader there with the experience. So flash forward to a couple of years ago now, sometime late 2019, Folio in the UK, the Folio Society, a wonderful 
very high quality publisher that does special edition books contacted me and said they wanted to do an illustrated edition of A Man on the Moon. I was thrilled. My pandemic project turned out to be choosing the images for this book, which I did with my wife, Victoria Cole, who's a space person and a wonderful writer and editor. And then once we had chosen the images, I did a whole bunch of Photoshop work to make them worthy of of putting in the book. And I got to say, when I go to the Apollo 15 chapter, I am always drawn to uh, this image, pair of images that I put in. One is a photo that Jim Irwin took from the side of Hadley Delta of that bright, pristine panorama. And if you look very hard and you know exactly where to look, and I've indicated it with a little white square, you can see a little dot. But on the opposite page, I've, I've put in an inset, which is a photo that Dave took with a 500 millimeter lens. And you can clearly see the lunar module sitting on the planes of what they called Hadley Base when they landed at the Hadley-Apennine region of the moon. What I'm getting at is here the chance to add these images, these beautiful images, gave me a chance to bring the storytelling to a new level. Those two images I was going to mention to you if you didn't because they are so impressive. And of course, it was enabled by the fact that these were the first two guys to have a wheeled vehicle on another world. They had the lunar rover for the first time, and it allowed them to go so much further and to get that that wonderful panorama. And right. there was there's so much more about this uh, this mission. All of the photos that you chose, by the way, are terrific. And here's the thing. Anybody can go online. Anybody who's listening to this can go online and go to a number of online archives and see these images on a monitor and blow them up and zoom in and see details that you never knew were there before these beautiful new scans were released back in the 2000s, the early 2000s. And those images are amazing. They're like portals into the experience. There's the Apollo archive on Flickr. Arizona State University has a website called March to the Moon that has not only all the Apollo images, but all the pictures from Mercury and Gemini. You kind of love the moon, don't you? Oh, I've always loved the moon. The wonderful thing about it is the moon that I knew as a child through the eyepiece of my small backyard telescope. (laughs) Me too. Yeah has evolved into the moon that I know, having studied the geology of the moon in college, having written about and interviewed lunar scientists over the decades, understanding now that the moon is really, I think of it as the crown jewel of the solar system. And I say that because of several things. First of all, it is the place in the solar system where we can decode the earliest history of our solar system in the cleanest possible way. Scientists have a a phrase that they call a witness plate. When you do an experiment, you have a witness plate to record what happens in that experiment. The moon is a witness plate for cosmic history. I always say that it's like being led into the rare book room of the cosmic library because it hasn't been wiped out. That early history, unlike the earth, where there's plate tectonics 
and there's volcanism persisting right up to today, and there's weather and, and oceans. None of that has happened on the moon. Nothing much has happened on the moon, in fact, in about 3 billion years. So the moon is really the Rosetta Stone for decoding what the other planets have to tell us about the earliest history of the, of the solar system, including the time when impacts were bombarding the earth and may have played a key role in the origin of life, mm -hmm. contributing energy, contributing water, organic molecules that were you know, encased in, in asteroids and comets. All of this, to me, elevates the moon's importance. So that's one thing. The second thing is that it's the only place in the solar system where you can stand on another world and see the earth as a planet. And you'll see that in the images in this book. The astronauts were mesmerized by the earth. They took countless photographs, including many, many from the lunar surface, where you actually get a sense of place. This is one of the things that I was so struck by when I was writing A Man on the Moon was what must it feel like to stand on this airless, dust-covered, void, ancient world? Magnificent desolation. Magnificent desolation. Thank you very much, as Buzz Aldrin so eloquently described it. And look up in this blackness and see this breathtakingly beautiful blue and white planet. You know, the moon is the only place where you can do that. When you go to Mars... The Earth is going to be a bright star in the sky. It's not going to be the same experience. And then finally, the moon is what a couple of science fiction writers I know have called an outward bound school for learning how to live off planet. We have great dreams of becoming a multi-planet species. And of course, we talk about Mars in that context, but we're not ready to go to Mars. We are ready thank God, I'm so happy that I'm alive to see this because it really does look like NASA is about to go back to the moon. You're a geologist. Is it that geology that these guys did? And apparently, according to your the chapter in your book about Apollo 15, that they took so seriously, Jim Irwin and Dave Scott, is that what set them apart from the previous landings? Or, or I mean, what else made this mission to the moon unique? No, that was it. Apollo 15 took advantage of the fact that NASA had upgraded the Apollo spacecraft, taking advantage of uh, performance margin in the Saturn V, things like that. You could add, they ended up adding about 3,000 pounds wow. to the weight of the spacecraft, the lunar module and the command service modules. And that included a battery-powered rover, as you mentioned, to let them go miles over the surface and even up the sides of lunar mountains, extra oxygen and cooling water in their backpacks that let them go outside for more than seven hours at a stretch, as it turned out, a full working day uh, on the surface of the moon. With that came an intensified focus on the science return from these missions. Remember that when we first started going to the moon, science was a, a passenger. Everybody at NASA knew that going to the moon was so risky that they really had to prioritize getting there and getting back safely. Just getting there and getting back safely was going to be a brilliant accomplishment. So we did that. We did that not once, but twice, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, 
Apollo 12 showed we could land at a pre-chosen spot by touching down next to an unmanned surveyor probe. And then things were going to get more science-oriented. That's what Apollo 13 was supposed to do, was carry out a more science-oriented exploration. Of course, that didn't get to happen on 13, so 14 was handed that mission. But of course, you know, they had their hands full recovering from 13 and making sure that everything was good to go. And quite honestly, uh, Al Shepard was not particularly interested in, in geology. He turned out to be a pretty competent lunar observer just from his native intelligence, as uh, one of the geologists told me. But it wasn't until 15 that the opportunity and the interest came together in the person of Dave Scott. Mm. Dave understood that the way his mission was going to stand out was by maximizing the amount of science they got back. And he also genuinely felt a tremendous excitement at the chance to solve mysteries that nobody had ever been able to solve before, to actually pick up rocks that were billions of years old. I mean, he told me when he first started geology training, they would talk about billions of years old and he would think to himself, what? Nothing's that old. <laughs> you know, you can't wrap your brain around it. And then by the time he went, he and Jim Irwin had been out in the field with some of the country's top geologists, people like Lee Silver from Caltech, Gordon Swan from the U.S. Geological Survey, and many others. And of course, Al Worden had been training with Farouk El-Baz and others on the orbital observations. When they got down onto the surface, Dave and Jim were lunar field geologists. They performed as well as anybody could have asked within the confines of a pressurized spacesuit, within the confines, the limitations of being on a timeline that was, you know, one of the things they had to do was design the moonwalks so that at any given moment, mission control would be watching how much oxygen do they have left in their backpacks, and they could never be allowed to drive the rover farther from the LEM, the lunar module, than they had oxygen to walk back if the rover broke down. That's what makes that picture from the side of Hadley Delta, the one where the lunar module is this little speck. You realize looking at that picture, my God, if the rover breaks down, they've got a three and a half mile walk hmm. back to the relative safety of their lander. And yet, as I say in the text, Dave and Jim were anything but apprehensive. They were, in fact, elated to be there. They knew everything was working. Let's go do some geology. And we could go on with some of the treasures that these guys dug up, including that fantastic Genesis rock, which there is that wonderful photo you included in the book of this thing sitting as if it's, you know, Arthur's sword Excalibur waiting to be picked up by the astronauts. Isn't that a great photo? I love oh, that God, photo. Yeah. And you can see that rock. It's got a lot of grime on it. It's been sitting there for millions of years since the impact that excavated it from the moon's primordial crust. But between the layers of grime, you see the white of mm. pure mm -hmm. anorthosite, calcium feldspar, that the scientists had told Dave and Jim, we think that's what the primordial crust of the moon is made of. And that's why they both reacted to it so ecstatically. And Dave said, we found, I think we found what we came for. 
You, you geologist, you, I can hear your thrill as well. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andy. Thank you so much, Matt. Space historian and author Andy Chaikin. I'll be back with What's Up and Bruce Betts in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are joined by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That is Bruce Betts. Welcome back. I have a message for you from Laura Dodd in California to Bruce. Regarding the listener who complained about the varying difficulty of the trivia questions, I like the variety. Some make me work hard, which is great. The easy ones allow more people to participate, which is also great. You're doing fine. Oh, thank you. That's kind of what I was thinking, but it's really nice to hear from a listener. That, so thank you. I hope that's been enough to pull you out of the terrible depression that you've been in ever since you heard that first Well, message. no, but it's a really good start. <laughs> All right. Look it up at the night sky. We'll cheer you up. Well, low in the West, we've got fellows. <laughs> Sorry. Low in the West in the early evening, uh, Venus looking super bright. And coming up over in the East in the early evening now, really bright Jupiter and yellowish Saturn. Saturn reaching opposition on August 2nd, where it's on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. And so it'll be rising around sunset and setting around sunrise. Perseid meteor shower coming up, peaking August 12th and 13th with increased activity before and after by several days. I'll give you more about that as we get closer. We move on to this week in space history. Apollo 15. I'm all over it. 50-year anniversary of Apollo 15 landing on the moon and driving a rover for the first time with humans in it. And uh, then launching for heading back to Earth. So it was a big, big deal, big mission, good stuff. And how? Uh, what great timing that we were able to bring Andy Chaikin on this week to talk in large part about just that. On to Random Spearfork. Obodio Do. So here's another thing I didn't know, which is where a lot of my random space facts come from. There were several cosmonauts that were almost injured in an assassination attempt against Leonid Brezhnev in 1969, the Soyuz 4-5 crew was going to have a ceremony to celebrate their success, and they were in an open car in the front, and then an assassin, thinking he was attacking the car with Brezhnev, who wasn't in it, attacked a car with uh, other cosmonauts, including rather rather famous ones, including Valentina Tereshkova and Alexei Lanoff, and actually killed their driver. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. 
I had no idea. I'd never heard of this. First of all, that was one dumb assassin. You ever see Leonid Brezhnev? Could you confuse him with an astronaut? I don't think so. <laughs> well, <laughs> the ones who got attacked were a closed car, to his credit. But yeah, uh, ah, no. Okay. No. That happened in, in bold fashion. Uh, after they tidied things up, they went ahead and had the celebration ceremony for uh, Soyuz 4 and 5. That's an amazing story. Hmm. We move on to the trivia contest. And I had asked you, what was the first successful Venus orbiter? Perhaps one of the ones out of the easy category. We'll see. I think you could say that. Yeah, I think this is one of the easier ones. Here is the answer hidden away in verse from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. The Nera 9 was the 24th mission that headed toward Venus from Earth. Fewer than half had been close to successful for space. It had been quite a dearth. But this one completed, and down through the heated, acidic confusion it came. Orbiter orbiting, lander was landing for Soviet Union acclaim, something I imagine Leonid Brezhnev was also pretty proud of. Yeah, I'm sure, to credit for. Yeah, so we had the Venera 9 lander, but also the orbiter, which was the first successful Venus orbiter. Here is our winner. First time, Russell Brown in Manitoba, Canada. He uh, said Venera 9, as most of you did, and so congratulations, Russell. We're going to be sending you that new paperback edition of The Sirens of Mars by our friend Sarah Stewart Johnson. The Sirens of Mars, Searching for Life on Another World, a lovely, lovely book. And uh, you can listen to my conversation uh, with Sarah last fall when the hardcover uh, edition of that came out. We're ready for more. All right, we're going to talk orbital stuff coming back into the atmosphere. Mir was the most massive object to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, followed by Skylab. What was next? After Mir and Skylab, what was the most massive artificial object to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Cool. You've got until Wednesday, August 4th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this brand new quiz. And we have a brand new one-of-a-kind prize for you. Well, I think they printed more than one, but we only have one to give away. It is the book Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings, including Apollo 15. It comes to us from uh, Earl Swift, who also wrote the bestseller, Chesapeake Requiem, from uh, Custom House. It's, it's terrific. I haven't read all of it, but it's excellent. Uh, the full development of the rover and a lot of uh, how it contributed to our exploration of the moon. Now, you may be wondering, why aren't we giving away that new Folio Society edition of A Man on the Moon? Well, because it's really expensive. <laughs> and, and we also, the Folio Society wanted us to tell you, because they their books are very special, they're sold only at their site, foliosociety.com. You're not going to find that on Amazon or any place like that. You can probably still get the uh, older editions of uh, A Man on the Moon by our friend Andy, Andy Chaikin, plus the other great book by him that I've got, which is probably as beautiful as this new edition of uh, A Man on the Moon from Folio Society. It's the book he wrote in collaboration with the Air and Space Museum. It's, it's simply called Air and Space, uh, all about the collection at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. But we are giving away Across the Airless Wilds. Good luck. I hope, uh, 
how can I say I hope your number comes up in random.org? I'm talking to tens of thousands of you, but what the heck? Good luck. <laughs> All right, everybody. Go out there, look out for the night sky, and think about squid. Thank you, and good night. Do you know a squid, or at least cuttlefish, can propel themselves at 25 miles an hour or faster uh, using their, their water jets? Random marine life fact. <laughs> That is Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its historic members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.